Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You probably know that my wife and I like to go to Rocky Point on vacation. If you've ever been to Rocky Point, you know there is the Rocky Point, right? Whale Hill there sticks up. And going out east from Rocky Point there in the harbor area is a sandy beach. And going, or excuse me, going west is the sandy beach. And going east is Rocky Beach. I remember going over to Rocky Beach and looking at it, and it's nothing but sand. There's not a rock in sight. I mean, a few rocks over by Whale Hill. And I think they misnamed this beach. Then the tide went out, and all of a sudden you see all these big black rocks everywhere along the... the it, it was a matter of whether the tide was in or was out, whether it looked like a rocky beach or a sandy beach. And I bring this up because I think it's a nice illustration of what is happening in our culture. You wait six hours and suddenly everything looks different. We are living in a time of dramatic change and transition. And this can be very disorienting, disillusioning. Things that you thought you could see and you knew, you know what our culture looked like, you knew what, what society was, you had certain norms and everything, and then all of a sudden the, the, the tide goes out and things are nothing like the way you remember it being. You're not sure what is going on. Now, I don't want to overstate things. Sometimes we, we can tend to think that because when we see change, that suddenly this is like unprecedented. Christians for thousands of years have undergone dramatic changes, have seen terrible persecution, have seen dramatic reversals of fortune. We are nothing new. But at the same time, we should not misunderstand or, or underestimate the dramatic changes around us when, when words like man and woman have to be clarified. You never before had to define what those words meant. Something is changing. Societal norms are changing, and this can be disorienting. And for some, this leads to a response of, of isolation or despair, recrimination, finger-pointing, those people did this or they did that. We used to have a more godly America. I would just say, talk to an older black person from 50 years ago and see if they felt that things were terribly just. Sometimes we're blind to our own injustices. The past was not a golden age, and it is not right to retreat into isolation or bitterness. Another response to these changes is to want to join them. Can't beat them, join them, as the old cartoons used to say. 
We're encouraged to be courageous and embrace a new morality, to to edit our Bibles, to, to understand that all of society was about systemic oppression and to address that and to be, in the modern words, woke. The temptation is to embrace this. Why? So that we'll be respectable. We are rapidly becoming disrespectable people. You understand that. To to hold to this Bible is rapidly becoming disreputable and slightly shameful. And we need to know that that is what's coming. And do not be surprised when people go and want to edit this book and change what it has clearly said for thousands of years in order to get respectability. Neither of these responses is right. Both of them are coming from the flesh. Both of them are motivated not by the Spirit of God, not by the the Word of God, but by our own fleshly reactions to the changes that we see around us. And so this morning, I want to talk about what it means to have a Christian worldview, to see the world and our place in it according to the Word of God. To know that that does not change. If you remember the disciples when they were in the boat and the storm came up. And they're looking at the storm and they're panicking. Because they see the threats to them and they think their boat is going to get swamped. And they completely forget that the maker of the universe is asleep in the stern of the boat. And if you find yourself today tempted by the societal and cultural storms around us to start to panic and become fearful and to think, oh no, we need to do this or that, or the same maker of the storm is asleep in the back of the boat. It's okay. What we need to do is fix our eyes and our minds and our hearts upon him. And so this message is designed, really, as kind of a follow-up, an add-on to what Josh had preached in 1 Timothy, where he's talking about, or in 1 Peter, where he's talking about us as elect exiles. That we have to come to the mind that that this world is not our home, that this is not where we are pursuing respectability, That this is the place that we have been put to evangelize. That we have been put here to live and to show forth the goodness of our God. And so I hope this passage is a blessing to you this morning, the way it has been to me. So if you would, look at your Bibles there, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and you'll see the very first word is for. So before we really get into the text, I want to stop and address that word for, because that tells you, I remember I had a professor walked in and he said, because I love bananas. What is that? You immediately understand it's relating to something else, but we don't know what that something else is. And he said, folks, that's what often happens with Bible preachers, they grab a certain verse and you don't realize that there's a dependent clause or this relationship to something else and it gets ignored and so you can end up distorting the scriptures. And so I don't want to do that this morning and you should expect your pastors not to do that. 
to put it into the right context. And so four, what is that four there for? Well, it's following on from the prior verses. If you go back and read verses 1 to 10, you'll see that it is just chock full of ethical commands. Paul is writing to older men and to older women, to younger women, to younger men, to servants, and he's telling them how they're supposed to live. And it's all about their ethics and how they're supposed to behave. And he does this in a way that is authoritative. He, he isn't making suggestions to join him on a certain way of thinking. If you look at the last verse, he tells Titus very clearly, command these things. This is not a suggestion. This is the way Christians live. This is not optional. This is God's command. It comes with apostolic authority. Don't back down on it. And so he's given all of these ethical commands, and now what he's doing when we come to our text, he's grounding it on what we're going to look at today. One further step backward. The the whole letter of Titus is being written to the island of Crete. Titus is a pastor being sent in to this island of Crete. And the Cretans, even among pagans, are known as bad people. They are immoral and licentious and lazy and a bunch of no, you know, no good deadbeats. That's how they're known even among the pagans. And he's writing to them and saying, in the midst of that culture, you've got to stand firm. the, The ethical commands don't change one bit. Stand firm. And so I think it's very instructive to know that this is being written to a culture which is really degenerate. And so if we, you start to think of our culture as perhaps degenerating in certain ways, it should encourage us to know the word of God comes in the same way. How are we to cultivate this godly perspective and to live in the Crete of our world? The first thing I want you to know is we need an epiphany. We need an epiphany. Now, in English, the very first word there is for, okay, the the connection. But Greek and English syntax are not the same thing. In Greek, the very first word there is appeared. Literally, be appeared for the grace of God, saving to all men. So he starts, he's he's grounding this ethical command in the fact that there has been this appearance, In English, the the word that we derive from it is the word epiphany. There has been an epiphany. Maybe you don't use the word epiphany very often. Have you ever read a cartoon? You know when the light bulb pops up over somebody's head. Epiphany, okay? Idea comes to mind. There is this revelation like, ding, the light goes on. Ah, I get it. There's been an appearance. There's been this, this coming to understand something. And when we have this epiphany, we now understand. And this epiphany that Paul is talking about does not come from within us. It comes from outside of us. It comes from God. That God has sent his epiphany into the world, namely Jesus Christ. You remember when... Peter stood before Jesus, and Jesus asked him, Who am I? Peter says, You're the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus looks at him and says, Blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. 
Peter needed an epiphany. When he confessed the truth, Jesus immediately recognized that that did not come from the natural world. That came from God. You see, friends, we are completely dependent upon God to reveal the truth to us. Religion and godliness and all that is right and good is not figured out by us working our way up to God. It comes from God revealing his character, his nature, and himself to us. Do you understand where that puts us? It should humble us this morning. No one here can say, I figured out God. I figured out salvation. I'm smarter than the next guy, and now I know. No, everything that we know that, I mean, you can do that in the natural world, but everything that pertains to life and godliness, the things that are going to be eternal and to be lasting for all eternity, those things all came to you because God revealed them to you through his word, through his son. The word of God comes to us and puts us in a place of passive receivers of his grace. And so it is that that's what has been revealed, the grace of God. Paul is asserting here that the grace of God is breaking into the natural order. There's there's a way that things are going, but there is this dramatic break in. So seriously, do we need grace? I mean, didn't God create us good? And God doesn't make mistakes, does he? And and God's going to be gracious to everyone, right? I mean, seriously, Mark, are you suggesting that God discriminates between one person and the next? You're suggesting that God's not fair. We understand. You you see what I'm doing? I'm I'm reasoning out the way the natural mind tends to go, the, the way our culture is going to hear that. You see, to understand what grace means... In a biblical concept, in the way that the the Bible uses it, you have to understand the fall. The fall is central. Recently, an openly homosexual politician publicly said to another openly Christian politician that if you have a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me. Your quarrel, sir, is with my creator. You see his argument, right? He's saying, God made me this way. And so if I feel it, my feelings are natural. And if they are natural, it is therefore right and good. But you see what he's missing? He's missing the fall. His reasoning is right insofar as it goes, except that he does not understand the fall that we have turned our back upon God. The Christian knows that indeed God created me good, that he made me for his glory, that he did not make a mistake, that he did all things well. But at the same time, the Christian mind, the Christian thinker, the one who is born of the child of God, who knows the spirit of God, knows that they are sinners and warped, that they need God's grace That without God's grace, there is no salvation and restoration. 
If you're a Christian, you may be thinking, well, this seems pretty obvious, isn't it? Don't people know this? No. Our society increasingly does not understand this. And so when we talk about things like grace and righteousness, what's often heard is, we Christians are good people and you sinners are bad people. We have to be very careful not to convey that message because it is not true and it is not what the Bible teaches. Those are our society's default categories. And if you don't know that, just go watch cable news for an hour and you will find that there is no grace. There is no understanding of a fall and a redemption. These are alien concepts. And when we start talking about them, we've got to know that others will not understand them. And you, if you are a Christian, must. It's absolutely vital to understanding the message of God that you think through these categories. Check your heart. Do you like good morals because it makes you a good person? Or do you pursue good morality because it is pleasing to your creator? That can be a tricky question. Because the outward actions of self-righteousness and graciousness often look the same. But that the heart that they are flowing out of are completely different. So where does good morality come from? It needs to come from the grace of God. It's polluted if it comes from self-righteousness. And to whom did this revelation of the grace of God come who now understands that they stand in need of this grace? Paul says to all people. It came for all people. It's salvation for all people. God is no respecter of persons. He's not discriminating between one group and another. I find it ironic at this moment that our culture is increasingly turning towards identity politics. We are going back to elemental things like skin color, ethnic origins, or worse, our lusts to discover who we really are. We think that in these physical things, in these passing things, in these these earthly things that we discover something fundamentally true and liberating about ourselves. What freedom is that going to bring to know that you are a product of nature? There's no freedom in that. There's nothing transcendental and and, and uplifting and transcendent. No, what we're saying is that we are imprisoned and chained to fleshly things. Friends, that is not God's view of who we are. God did create every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. It was God's idea to create male and female. It was God's idea to create all the different peoples of the earth and the cultures and these things that are often looked at. These are good things, and they are right, and they reflect the creativity and the bounty of our God. They're not what define us. They are not our identity. Jesus said, well, John, speaking for Jesus, said, 
For as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. Friends, your identity is not grounded in the things of this world, in the things that will be dead and gone and perish in a hundred years. If you are a Christian, you know that your identity is much deeper than that. You are created for much more than the simple scheme of this world. You are created for God himself. Paul says here that we are created to be God's treasured possession. And that possession doesn't fade away and disappear and go back to dust. God created us for more than that. And if we're seeking after identity in those things, it's going to turn to chalk in your mouth. Friends, I implore you, look for the living water, thing that is going to continue on and on. We were made for more. So you see that if you are a Christian, you know that you need grace because by nature, we are not okay. We are fallen. And we need God's salvation to put us back and to restore us to what he made us to be, to restore that identity of sons and daughters of the living God. And it is God's grace, it is his epiphany that opens our eyes to be able to see our need and to even desire that change. We are no better than anyone else. We just had the light bulb pop up. And it wasn't given to us by God. It wasn't given to us by ourselves, it was given to us by God. God's grace comes to us as an epiphany. And if you have received God's grace, it's going to affect your life. Second thing here is Paul is pointing out to them that they need to resist this present age. God's grace leads us to resist this present age. This age, as he's talking about, is an age of rebellion. For those of you who have come on Wednesday night to our Revelation class, you know that when you get into Revelation, there's a multitude of ideas. I just want to say thank you to Joshua Griever, as well as Toby and Justin, whoever has been teaching in that class. You know that we haven't all come to agreement, but I think God has given us those naughty things in his scripture to really cause us to ponder and and to work at it. And so thank you guys for the way that you've led us through that and helped us to think seriously about the word of God. It has been a blessing. But this, this is one eschatological question I think we can all agree on without a problem. I hope. The Bible speaks of this age. And when it's talking about this age, and, and then it'll talk about the age to come, When it talks about this age, it's the idea of lawlessness and rebellion. It's evil, and it is all the the, the rebellion against God. But the age to come is the coming kingdom of God and an age of righteousness and harmony. So, for example, at the beginning of Galatians, Paul says to the Galatians, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What you have is this age that we live in and the age to come in the person of Jesus Christ has now broken into this age. And so we are living in the overlap. 
in that time when the age to come has begun, because in the age to come there will be no death, and we have seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. The age to come has been inaugurated, it has begun in one sense, but, but we still live in this age of the present. And so we live in that tension. And so God's grace breaking into this age is going to have ethical implications. That's what the ten verses before this had, and that's what you see him talking about here when he says that it's training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright, godly lives. And, and, and further down, he continues with to, to reject lawlessness. It has ethical implications. There's negative and positive. The negative is this. That we are taught to deny ungodly and worldly passions. They are incompatible with our calling. It's kind of like if you are an Olympic athlete and you are training for your event, you have to give up fudge. Some of you would rather have a good chocolate fudge than a gold medal, but you understand my analogy, right? You have to give up something to get something better. Really, gold is better. Something desirable in the short term is denied because of a long-term goal. And that's exactly what it is. It's that word training or discipline. This is the idea of discipleship. That this is something that you engage in. It's rigorous. It's not easy. We're not called to the easy life. This is not called to sitting back on your couch and kicking your feet up. This is a rigorous life. Because you're going to have to resist this present age. This age is trying to jam you into its mold that is a Appealing to your lusts. It's worldly and ungodly. And boy, does Satan know how to lie beautifully. And to make it just as appealing as honey. And when it goes down, it will be bitter. Friends, we must resolve to choose righteousness over ungodly lusts. And this present age, Adam and Eve did not do that. And we have been having to fight this battle ever since. So I exhort you, resist. But positively, you see that the the children of God are marked off there by self-control. That they exhibit godly lives. They don't wantonly pursue worldly lusts, because they have their minds focused on the age to come, and therefore they will not be mastered by the age that is. Remember Lot's wife. Haunting little verse. Remember Lot's wife. This present age is doomed to fire and brimstone. And those who remain in it will perish with it. And those who turn their faces to it, like Lot's wife, will perish. But those who turn their faces away to salvation and orient their lives to the coming age to come will find life and life eternal. Friends, check your heart. 
Don't allow the desires of this present evil age to capture your heart. They're doing it all the time. I like to watch HGTV. I don't know, maybe that's embarrassing. There it is. But I have to check periodically and say, how much of a house would I really want? And my desire, that's not a bad thing. The house is cool, but really, what's the desire of my heart? Everyone cheats on their no-sinning diet, right? Christians, we all have this no-sin diet. How many of you have not cheated on your no-sin diet? Good, nobody added lying to it. That's good. (laughs) We all do. The real question is, what do you do after you've cheated on your no-sin diet? Where do you go? Are you satisfied? Do you like the sin of this age? Or are you turning your heart back to Jesus? You are not going to reject sin by accident. It's going to take a deliberate choice. You're going to have to train your mind for it. The sovereignty of God, his authority, the fact that he has revealed his will and all these things, and we see this big sovereign view of God does not vitiate, does not get rid of, does not negate in any way our responsibility to pursue holiness and discipleship. Those two are friends. They go hand in hand. So not only are we called then to resist this present age, we're called to embrace the age to come. It's not all about don't do this and don't do that in the neighbor. No, look at what Paul says here about the age to come. Look at how he says that we should be looking at it. Verse 13, waiting for it. This isn't like when you go to the dentist and you're just waiting to get in and you're like, oh, I don't know what's worse, waiting or actually having it happen. No, this is like the waiting like kids for Christmas type thing, right? You're pinning your hopes on what is to come. Your endurance and patience in the moment is driven by your expectation of the future. You know that people in concentration camps can suffer tremendously and persevere. But it's often been noted that it's when they lose hope they die. Right? It, hope has an amazing way of sustaining us. It completely colors the way we see our situation. Do you realize how much our present situation and the way you are right now, the way you think about your situation right now as you sit in this room is colored by what your expectation of the future is? What do you expect next year to look like? Your expectations for next year inform a lot of where you are right now. Let me give you an example. Imagine a person living in a cramped little apartment, driving a beater car who's up to their eyeballs in debt. Are they in a good place or a bad place? Well, imagine that they've just retired. Or imagine that they are in med school about to do their residency. You see, that circumstance looks completely different depending on what you think is going to come next. Apply that spiritually. Think about your condition right now. What do you expect to come next? Are you looking forward to this glorious appearing? 
That's what Paul reminds them of. Christian, what's next for you? Paul says it's the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blessed hope. Have you ever rooted for a lousy team? A football team? It's embarrassing that you have to reconcile yourself to defeat year after year after year for your entire life. And then one day, one beautiful day, to all the doubters' dismay, your team rises up, beats everyone, and wins the Super Bowl. Hypothetically speaking, hypothetically speaking, two years ago, that your team won the Super Bowl. Now take that joy and multiply it by whatever ridiculously large number you can think of, and that gives you some idea of what it will be for the Christians when Jesus Christ returns. They'll give you some inkling of what joy God's people will feel when that crucified, humiliated, and mocked Lamb of God comes in the power and glory in the clouds and the sky cracks open and everyone recognizes you rooted for the right team. You put your hopes in that God and he didn't just vindicate, he went beyond vindication. There is glory. All those who suffered for his sake, who, who for, forwent pleasure, who were socially disrespectable, who gave up and suffered and lacked, it was all worth it and more. Friends, you need that in mind. Because this expectation is what will help to steady you against the relentless drip, 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 shifting tides and moving sands of our culture. When everything else moves around you, you need this expectation to help you stand firm. Everyone wants to be with the winners, right? And Satan is telling you to get on his bandwagon. This is what's going to be the winning team. It's not. Jesus is going to win. Friends, if you're discouraged at this moment and think that you can't go on, I would suggest to you this afternoon or this week when you have some time, sit down for 10 minutes and just envision the world that Jesus is bringing is going to be. Envision a world when the self-promoting and proud and manipulative will be tossed out of office and the weak and the gentle and the honest will rule when the meek will inherit the earth. When the Beatitudes are not just aspirational, but they are actual in this world. Meditate on that. Draw strength from that. Our hope lies in this great God who is our Savior. Our hopes are pinned on Him. And we have every confidence that He is going to come through. The way things are right now is not the way they will be. 
for the worldling, for the person of this age, the one who has embraced this age. They don't have anything to look forward to. When they have lusts of the flesh and demands and cravings and all of these things come up, the knowledge that death is coming drives urgency. If I don't get satisfaction, I'll never get it. That's this age. But if you're a Christian... If you have your hope set in the age to come, then the knowledge of death and the knowledge of the end of all things doesn't work in you urgency, it works in you patience, godliness, and righteousness. It says here that those who are to be God's possession are zealous for good works. That's where it's going to go. That is our ambition. We're not just avoiding this sinful age and trying to not do bad things. No, if you are are God's child and you know these things to be true, you're living into that age. Because after all, the Holy Spirit of God is going to spoil sin for you. It's it's not going to be fun. It's going to be eat at you. But good works satisfy your heart because you were made for that. We were saved for good works, to glorify God, to show forth his glory, to enter into his glory, to be his special possession. That is the identity that will last. That is the satisfaction that will last when we pursue it. So I call you this morning, make a choice. If you're here and and you're not a Christian or you're beginning to... think that maybe you're not a Christian, you're realizing that. Friends, this is an invitation. Accept this God. The grace of God has appeared for us. It is breaking into this world. It proves that God is not desiring to be your enemy. He's desiring that you be saved and come to a knowledge of salvation. He has given his own son as a ransom for us all, for as many as would receive him, receive him today. And if you are a Christian, let us join together to help one another to resist sin, to be zealous for good works. We can't do it on our own resources. It's not us. It's going to have to be the Spirit of God working within us. It has to be that hope of the coming age. We need each other. We need God's grace. We live on His grace. His grace is sufficient and it offers us a glorious future. So make the choice this morning to set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. Let us pray.